Welcome to Changemaker Rehab. Changing the world is exhilarating and overwhelming. Join me, Heather McDougall, as I host bold leaders, entrepreneurs, artists, and changemakers on the front lines of the world's most pressing challenges. Discover what it means to be empowered by your mission rather than consumed by the magnitude of the problem you're trying to solve. Together, step-by-step, we stand on the legacy of others and create the world we dream about. Hello, hello, Changemaker Rehab audience. I'm so, so happy to be here. I'm Heather McDougall, your host. And today, oh my gosh, we have in the house, George McGraw from Dig Deep. Oh my gosh, an incredible organization doing amazing things with water. I'll, of course, let him uh, tell you all about it. But welcome, George. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thanks for having me, Heather. Good morning. So out the gate, my big question is, you know, what is what is your dream or your mission for the world? If you have like a crystal ball or when you look ahead, like what is this vision of the world that you are aiming towards? Gosh, the whole world feels very big. (laughs) Most of of my work focuses on the U.S. And I think my sort of personal mission is to make sure every person in the U.S. has safe running water and a working toilet. Simple, simple. Like I think most people think that already exists, but it doesn't. So Dig Deep is your organization that you founded. Um, how how long ago did you found it? Actually, it's been a little over 10 years, which is absolutely wild. Somehow a decade, just like, boom, blinks. Yeah, totally. <laughs> flies, flies right by. Also, it crawls sometimes. Yeah, my, my little baby is 10 years old, um, walking and talking. I'm interested in, you know, do you remember the moment or maybe it's a collection of moments where you sort of discovered the problem that you are now addressing with Dig Deep. Absolutely. And it's funny because it it wasn't the problem we started with. Um, Mm. My background is in international human rights law, and I always was fascinated by water. Um, I mean, fascinated by water in like a personal sense. I'm like a triple water sign. Like I really... (laughs) I was the kind of yeah. kid that like the mom would take you to the zoo and she'd go get the tickets and turn around and I'd be like strip naked playing in the fountain in the entryway. Um, Sweet. Yeah, I, uh, I've always been obsessed with water and uh, lived, you know, a pretty sheltered life um, in the middle class in the Midwest and just didn't understand that there were people in other parts of the world that didn't have water and was so floored by that, that I um, really focused my education on that, focused my career on that. And we founded Dig Deep in 2011 to help communities in Cameroon at first and South Sudan get access to water. And I remember thinking, I mean, like, I'm, I'm a, you're a, are you a millennial? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like, you know, the millennial thing, like, we'll, we'll start and you're a startup queen. Like, we'll start anything. Yeah. Like, let's do it. And I definitely had that spirit. I was like, oh, well, this is a problem in someone else's country. Like, I'll, I'll just like, you know, pack my bags and start helping. And I think the moment for me that really sort of dropped me into my career and made Dig Deep what it was today was a phone call that we got from a donor in late 2013. Um, a woman named Karen who called our office and said, you know, I want to give you 50 bucks or something, but I uh, I want you to spend it helping people in the U.S. get water. And I was like, Karen, you're crazy. Like, nobody here needs that. Why don't you let me spend it where it's really, really needed? And she called me some names I probably shouldn't say on this podcast. (laughs) Not really, but I mean, she was very frustrated. I think she probably like worked her way down a list of organizations and kept getting the same answer. You know, there are Mm. hundreds of 
what we call WASH organizations based in the US doing this work in Latin America and Southeast Asia and in Africa. And she was calling all of them. And no one knew that right here at home, there were literally millions of people without running water or working toilets. And that that really changed the game for us. It's so true. You know, in the way I describe the space, the, I guess, industry that uh -huh. I kind of came through is sustainability, which of course is really, when I even describe it, I'm like, it's the balance of all things, you know, it's so how we approach it. But this, this idea of it's local and global. So in my work, I've been all over the world, kind of similar of understanding how does sustainability impact people all over the place. And when my brother and I started our company and our product Bogo Brush, one of the things we were so fascinated to learn actually is that in the United States, there are like over 80 million Americans who don't have access to adequate oral care. And that's, it's kind of that similar sense. So many, I mean, even especially a decade ago, I mean, there was, of course, like Tom's shoes was kind of the poster of oh, yeah. the social impact and they were giving shoes overseas and as that sort of bubbled up and created tension, I think we really started to just we meaning socially and culturally understand, like, oh, how do we how do we start to look closer to our homes in a way for what these problems are? And of course, for me with oral health, water is so closely linked to well, it's what links to everything you can't survive without without clean water. But I remember reading on your side and learning what is the do you remember what is the number of Americans who don't have access to clean water? Well, there's 2.2 million Americans that we focus on who have no access to water at all. I mean, imagine like you woke up this morning and you didn't have any water to do anything, no shower, no coffee, no brushing teeth. You had to walk outside of your house. And if you're lucky, you know, get in a car and go buy bottled water at a grocery store or a gas station. Um, maybe you went on foot or on horseback and like filled it up at a kiosk or at a truck stop or at a stream. Um, mm -hmm. a lot of people we work with in West Virginia are going to like mountain springs and old mine shafts, but the number of people without water that's safe to drink is much bigger. That might be 40, 50 million additional people who, you know, mm. have running water at home, but it might be contaminated with something. So, um, it's a big problem and it's, and it's growing. I think it's funny. It's funny to hear you talk about sustainability. It is funny to think of sustainability as an industry when like, it's really everything. And you know, that's part of the frustration is like, why, like, you know, why aren't we thinking of everything as sustainability, um, especially with climate change where it is. But yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. So you learned of the, I mean, Karen. Karen communicated <laughs> with good, you. The good kind of Karen, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the good Karen. She <laughs> helped you see a problem close to home. And yeah. I mean, in my personal opinion, so just a little bit on like international Yeah, support, global versus right? local type yeah, situation. I, yeah, totally. It's sensitive, right? Be that, oh, yeah. Especially as, as privileged Americans or anywhere going into other places. I mean, I tend to believe also that there's so much we can learn from each other. So I think that there there's, I mean, probably there are things that you even learned in Cameroon and South Sudan that influence what you do here yeah, and vice absolutely. versa. So it's, I think it's so good that we have global relationships, but it's how do we step into these communities. But even here in the US, what do you do as you are cultivating relationships with these communities of folks who don't have access to water? How do you what how do you go about that process of establishing trust and, you know, longevity? Yeah, because in some cases there's not much difference there. I mean, there's there's so much to unpack in that in that question. Mm -hmm. It's like it's really interesting that we are the generation where that inflection point happened. You know, like mm -hmm. I feel like 
our parents, our grandparents, our great grandparents, the idea was like, yeah, I mean, you know, America is this wealthy, successful bastion of democracy and freedom. And of course, we help other people in their countries deal with their problems, often, ironically, problems we created. Mm -hmm. And um, I think we started really navel gazing for the first time only in the last, I don't know, what, 20 years? You know, like Tom's is, Tom's is really the perfect example. Like it happened mm -hmm. at that moment, you know, it, it saw this this change from like, oh, like, of course, it's wonderful that every time you buy a pair of shoes, one goes to someone in need to all of a sudden a lot of like, is it wonderful? And like, yeah. what kind of shoes? And what does that do to the shoe market in those places? And, you know, who's designing those shoes? Are they culturally acceptable? Are they, you know, are they good for people's feet and good for their economy and good for you know, all these questions bubble to the surface? And, you know, it's, it's easy to dismiss some of it as cynicism, which I think it is. But a lot of it is really like, you know, an important, an important exercise and asking ourselves like, you know, what impact are we really having? And if, if we're really, you know, often solving, quote unquote, solving problems that we created almost accidentally in the past, like, mm -hmm. are we creating more problems in through our solution? So it's a really interesting, it's a really interesting question um, that I didn't answer. And now I have to answer. <laughs> so, yeah. No, but I really appreciate that you even said what you said, because it's true. It's so complicated. And when I go into communities, I mean, now if when I do work in sustainability, wherever I am, whether I'm working in, you know, food sovereignty in the Maldives or uh, like ag here, now I'm back in North Dakota, like ag tech things here in North Dakota. It's, I don't, I really practice not coming with a solution and really yeah. coming with listening and just facilitating conversation. And when you were describing it, you really did a great job of highlighting how complex these issues are and how complex the idea of quote unquote solution is. And I think it's just so, it's so important and it can be paralyzing in some ways. So, yeah, I, I mean, mean, this Karen story is, is a good example of this. So <clears throat> Karen had been volunteering on the Navajo Nation, which is the country's largest reservation. It takes up parts of Arizona, New Mexico, and Utah. If it were a state, it would be the 10th biggest. It's huge. Mm. Um, and there's a couple hundred thousand Navajo living there. And Karen, I think, was doing some volunteer work with a, a school or a church group building houses, like a, like a Habitat for Humanity style project. Housing is so essential. But they were building these traditional Navajo houses with a local Navajo nonprofit, and they weren't building bathrooms or kitchens in them. And she was like, what? Like, how do you build a house without a kitchen or a bathroom? And her Navajo colleagues were like, well, there's no running water in this area. So like, we can't build those things. And I think that was really what got her brain kind of working. Like, if we're here doing this, like, are we doing it halfway? And is this really helpful? And like that got her, that got her motivated to make that list and start making those calls, which, you know, made her more and more frustrated until she finally got to me. The interesting thing about that is that the Navajo Nation, sure, like it's, it's 10 hours from my front door to get there by car, but it's a sovereign indigenous nation. You know, it's, it's a, it's for all intents and purposes, a different country, a different culture, even within that nation, there are so many mm -hmm. different subcultures, linguistic differences, differences between the East and the West and the different agencies. And um, I'm not Navajo. Like, not only do I, not only do I, not only do I not have the experience of growing up without running water or sanitation, like I, I remember growing up in the Midwest and we, my grandparents had this old farm in Ohio that we used to go visit. And I would see the outhouse that my parents used as kids when they used to go visit it. And I was like, oh my God, thank God I don't have to deal with that anymore. And, and thank God nobody does really assuming that like, that's not mm. how people lived anymore. So not only do I not have that personal experience, but I'm also 
not Navajo, I'm not from that nation or from these communities. And how do you build that rapport, build that trust, um, not only so that you can create a successful project, but so that you don't do more harm than good. And I think to your point, like coming in with like a genuine openness and curiosity, not just the kind that's like, well, I think I know what the solution is, but I'm going to do this slow so that people kind of come along with me. Mm -hmm. Really really coming with like curiosity and openness, not really knowing what the outcome is going to be and co-designing it with the community. Doing your best right away to build human resources inside that community. I think like the thing I'm most proud of at Dig Deep is not always our impact. It's kind of the way we pursue it. More than 40% of our almost 80 team members have lived or currently live without running water. Every one of our program managers and directors is from the community that we serve. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a sort of nothing about them without them approach. I can just imagine or almost not imagine how much you even personally have grown and expanded. I mean, you're obviously like a wonderful human to begin with. I don't want to fool you. (laughs) I'm terrible. (laughs) (laughs) what what are some of the things that you've discovered I mean maybe about yourself or as a leader as a change maker through this whether it's something maybe that surprised you about yourself or just something that you've even evolved in and really grown you know I think that the like the constant battle of this last 10 years for me has been really understanding I, I think my personality is really well suited to social entrepreneurship you know, like I'm the kind of person that loves to get up every day and do have a completely different schedule, a completely different day. Like it, the skills required, I don't always have and have to develop or find someone that has them like this, this idea of sort of curiosity and exploration and like that constant grind, like, you know, it's, it's addictive and I love it so much, but mm. I think realizing that social entrepreneurs or that instinct isn't necessarily suited to movement building. Um, Mm. because even, even in a management relationship and, you know, like having built a team like this, understanding that the kind of like constancy and humility and attention to detail and real care for, you know, another person in a long-term sort of intimate way, like that's what it takes to be a good manager and a good movement builder. And it's not, those aren't really the skills that we highlight or prioritize as social um, as social entrepreneurs. In, in social entrepreneurship, we we are highlighting the same skills we do in the rest of entrepreneurship, which is like move fast, break things, you know, embrace failure, iterate. And, you know, those things don't work when you're building a movement of people. You, you can't break them. Um, in mm. fact, the whole point is the opposite. So I don't know. I, I, I struggle with that. And I, I am like the singular point on our team that is maintaining that tension between, you know, creativity and innovation and pushing forward, but hoping that while we do that, there's enough sort of um, humility and introspection not to break the machine. You know, I, so I, I love working with mentors Me and too. I have... Uh, I have, you know, all kinds of mentors, mentors I pay, mentors that are advisors, right? Like all kinds. And I have a few on the payroll for sure. (laughs) All kinds of things. And I have a mentor, Victoria Washington's her name. And years ago, I remember her telling me that not exactly in the way you were describing it, but sort of as social entrepreneurs, like we work in these spaces of light and dark, right? And we have to like hold that. We have to expand ourselves really to hold that tension. And that's, that's our work here almost more than anything. We have to have the the ability to be moving forward in that experimental, that charging forward, the, you know, calling in resources from money to humans, right? There's like this, this energy at the same time as really holding the space for the 
I don't know, the realness, the humanness, the, the truth and the, the situation that we're holding. It's like optimism and, and hardship all at, all at the same time. And that's yeah. kind of what's coming up for me as I'm hearing you describe this. It's, I'm, what do you, how, like, do you have any practices or what do you do to help yourself like, stay in kind of your seat of leadership? Well, I mean, I live in Los Angeles, so I definitely have adopted a lot of sort of like the practices of friends around me. I I meditate every day. I begin and and end every day with a gratitude practice that involves journaling. You know, I try to exercise every day and maintain a healthy lifestyle. And that sort of like brain, body, heart balance is really important to me. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think in my work, and this has been difficult during COVID, um, the personal connection is really important to me. Being physically with the people that I work with um, at least once a week, being in community and in the field where the actual work gets done. And especially like witnessing that moment where a tap turns on for the first time, or, you know, taking the time to sit down with a homeowner we're working with and understand what's really going on in their lives. And I think like that has been a, that's been not only a place to find and maintain that balance, but it's also, it's also been the place where we find like the, 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 the best ideas for innovation and for, and for moving the work forward. Like I remember we were working on this project in 2019 that uh, resulted in a report called Closing the Water Gap in the U.S. Mm -hmm. It uh, was the first national study on this issue. It was the first to say like, hey, there are 2.2 million Americans who don't have running water. Here's where they live. Here's why they don't have it. It's structural racism. It's, you know, a lack of investment. It's the federal government's spending falling off a cliff and them not, you know, keeping their promises. It's, you know, the way we've treated tribes. And by the way, here's a roadmap on how to fix it. And Actually, uh, today's a big day because the uh, EPA and the USDA, the Department of Agriculture, announced a new program this morning um, to help 11 rural communities, including some from that report, get working toilets for the first time. And they cited the data in the report and they actually called their program closing the wastewater access gap in the United States. And um, it's it's the first time that like, you know, the federal government is going to take a direct role in solving this problem. It's a, it's a small program. It's a pilot program, but it's a huge I digress, but it's a huge day. Um, oh, this is amazing. I'm like giving yeah, you high great. fives right now. Happy cause... live. Oh. Yeah, I think mean, that's the thing about these big problems, right? Is like little social enterprises like digdeep.org, like we're not going to solve those ourselves. Also, it's not a responsibility. Like it's the government's responsibility to make sure every American has water and sanitation. A lot of what we do is to prove that it's possible and along the way help people get it because they need it. But so when we have moments like this where like the government comes in and adopts our, our messaging and builds a program to do something about it, like it's really exciting. But we were doing Doing this report and, and as part of it, we embedded researchers, including myself, in five communities around the country to really like hear people's stories and understand like what is causing this and why hasn't it been solved. And you know, we we embedded in in West Virginia and in the Texas Mexico border region and in the Navajo Nation and the California Central Valley and in rural parts of Alabama and Mississippi. And we were hearing some incredible personal stories from folks. Um, just the kind of stuff I was telling you about, like how to, how to find that balance sitting with people and really the power of that sort of like that encounter and that presence. And I remember um, I remember sitting with with one lady on the Navajo Nation and we were delivering water to her house via truck. And, you know, she and her family came running out of the house and like were filling up everything that would hold a drop of water. And Brenda, that was her name. She came out of the house and filled up a cooking pot and went back into the kitchen and started making tamales. And I I brought a, a big bucket of water, followed her in, you know, filled everything in the kitchen and then sort of sat there with her for a while. And I started to chatter up and I was like, oh, this is, you know, this is so nice. You're going to make tamales. You're going to have family over. What's the plan? And she's like, no, this is, this is a business. I'm going to make these tamales. I'm going to put them in this cooler. I'm going to put on this license. I'm going to walk down the hill. I'm going to sell them. 
And I thought like, oh, that's so nice. That's some like extra income that this, that we've made possible. And she explained that her husband was the primary breadwinner of the house. And he worked in a factory, had been injured, dropped something on his foot and it became infected. And without running water, they couldn't keep it clean at home. It, it got gangrene. He had to go to the hospital 50 miles away in Gallup. And he'd been treated. He was totally fine. But he'd been discharged from the hospital like a week before I got there and been sleeping on the streets of that town where the hospital was because, you know, no water meant no gas money and no, or no water meant no tamales. No tamales meant no gas money. No gas money meant Brenda couldn't get her husband. So, Mm. uh, you know, doing that report, sitting with these families, understanding that this was having such a big economic impact in their lives led to more research down the road and led to you know, more innovative projects on the Navajo Nation and other places. And I think um, the power of those, those moments, those like encounters with folks where you're really just sitting with each other and it's not about like productivity, you know, it's not about like making sure this, this wheel gets turned or this tap gets installed or this data gets collected. That unstructured time, I think is really important. What an amazing story. Like, thank you for sharing that. And, you know, I can think back on moments where I've, yeah, been somewhere and had that, as you described, this really unstructured moment where I'm just asking questions and listening. And there's, there's like a a magic almost, right. That happens. And I do think that kind of pulling together this concept of like, you are holding lightness and darkness and all of these energies together. It's like in that moment with what was her name? Brenda? Yeah, Brenda. Yeah. With Brenda, you know, it's like you're in this space. She's holding it too. And I think that's the thing. I was like, when we get in the communities, we see each other as like one, right? When we're really open, we see the oneness that we all share, the commonalities, the life, that energy and to be open to it then sparks the magic that I don't know creates like a spark in your zone of genius in who you are and what what you're here to do and um I just hope everyone who's listening like hears that the power of these seemingly simple moments because that's really that's really the work the work is to <laughs> listen like but it's true and I think <laughs> I think that, that that oneness is really important. And I think we focused on that for the last few decades. I also think like the, the differences are so important and you need that same amount of space in order to really see someone mm. who they are and how different they are from you. Mm-hmm. Um, and you need that in order to check sort of your own, your own prejudices, your own predispositions, your own ideas, mm. and also to like give them space to be fully themselves so that they can co-participate with you as an equal. Because I think, you know, often in our sector, you can kind of run roughshod over those really critical differences um, by just saying like, well, like, you know, we're all, we're all here, we're all one, we're all the same. And like, and that shared mm. humanity is definitely motivating to me. But honestly, I, I find in the field, it's not always as motivating as people's differences. Like sometimes, sometimes, you know, often our clients come from, is their difference? Is their uniqueness? It's it's what it is about their community that used to be such a powerful coal mining town, for instance, that that really drives them. Or it's, it's their unique ethnic identity, or it's the story of their family. Um, it's, it's something that maybe I don't share in that is the most motivating thing for them. And how do you acknowledge that and tap into that and harness that energy for co-creation and I think you're right it is like magic it's like you know it's it's not quite you know waving a wand and casting a spell but it's sort of Mm -hmm. like carving out the space so that the magic can just happen on its own I love that distinction too it's like yes there's this oneness and in a way it's acknowledging that that gives you an openness to go into a community and or any of us 
yet then it's also the thing that allows us to see the differences in the uniqueness and and that like I really hold this belief we all have our uniqueness that we're here yeah. and and it's yeah it's like through our uniqueness that everything continues on spinning you know not to be like too big and existential about it but kind of <laughs> a couple of things here as we kind of like come through the conversation i just wanted to to focus on you were you were you mentioned something a few minutes ago about not being able to solve it all. You're talking about the government and this pro the programs that that are coming through the EPA and the say USDA and this concept. I call it magnitude anxiety. When, like for you, it's okay, clean water in America or for the world <laughs> or whatever. But it's like yeah, there it's such a huge problem. How did you identify your lane of focus? I often talk with founders. I'm like, it's not your responsibility to solve it all. Like you. We can't solve it all. So what did you do to identify that for yourself? And kind of like, what advice do you have for maybe others who are searching for a way to find their place in a cause? You know, I... um... It's funny, I, the, the concept, I think that that magnitude anxiety is, is is real for sure. One of the ways that an early mentor of mine, I also love mentors, uh, described it was as your bucket. You know, like there's a there's an ocean of suffering out there. And every day you wake up and you take your bucket and you walk to the ocean and you draw out, you know, a bucket full and that's all you care about. That's, you know, you can't fix the ocean, but maybe you can do something with the bucket. And um, I think sort of the idea behind entrepreneurship, right, is do one thing and do it really well. Um, and it might take time to figure out what that one thing is. And that one thing, you know, might not be, you know, a single widget or a single idea. It might be a small collection of widgets or ideas. But um, we really sort of espouse that at Dig Deep. I think we're, we're playing with some ideas of how to celebrate our 10-year anniversary. And this idea keeps coming to the forefront, like one relentless pursuit, like our, like the simplicity of the mission. It's it's hot and cold running water and a flush toilet for every American. And I think um, that's often sort of like, that's the razor, you know, that you use to shave down everything you do back to its core. And so someone brings you an idea and you put that razor, you know, into your hand or that, that lens on your eyeball. And that's, that's how you see it. Like, does it fit? Um, is it, is it essential? Is it important? Is it urgent? And does it fit that? Does it fit that, that goal, that mission? I think like, I think there's a really interesting dynamic in starting a, a social enterprise, especially one that wants to solve a problem that's this big, where you have to have a pretty broad field of vision and um, and at the same time remain focused and once in a while be willing to shift that focus if something isn't working, um, like we did from Africa to the US, for instance. Mm -hmm. So I don't think there's a formula really for how to do it. I think there's there's probably a little bit of an instinct some people might feel it. Some people might prefer to see it in the data. Um, I'm not one of those people. <laughs> um, but there are other people on my team who are. Uh, I don't know. I feel like I feel like I'm dancing all around this question and not really answering it. But I I do think it's I do think it's a little bit unanswerable. Like, how do you get through your day as a human being, knowing how complex the systems and fragile the systems are around you, knowing you know what's in store with you know a few degrees of warming because of climate change, or you know what's ahead with the change of our sort of like political reality in the U.S., for instance. Like you can't let those things paralyze you, or you'll never get out of bed. So I think it's the same way you sort of focus your day as a human being. You have to focus your enterprise as a founder. They're very similar activities. Does celebration? I mean, you mentioned you have a gratitude practice. How much does celebration? like play a part in dig deep in who you are and, you know, just your work. Oh, we party hard at dig deep. We love a celebration. <laughs> 
Um, in fact, like my standing, uh, a lot of our standing meetings have a place for celebration at the end of them every, for every meeting, like what are we celebrating? And I think like that, that, that tone of sort of like joyful curiosity is, is really what we strive for here at Dig Deep, even when we're problem solving. Otherwise, like, you know, it'll kill you. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think like, you know, figuring out ways to, to make difficult work a celebration is, is important. I think, I mean, listen, I'm like a big birthday person. You know, like if I, I love my birthday, some people hate their birthdays. Me too. I'm all about my birthday. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, maybe it's just ego. I have no idea. But I, uh, just I super selfish love human. my birthday and I love other people's birthdays. Like I'm the first yes. on the text every, you know, every morning to be like, oh my God, it's Peter's birthday. Like, let's go ham. I, so yeah, celebration, celebration's a big deal here. And I think we're such a, we're such a, like a multicultural, multi-age, multi-ethnic institution at Dig Deep and not everybody celebrates the same way. So creating opportunities and channels for that, but then letting people kind of design celebrations themselves and celebrating that, celebrating in that way. That's been a lot of fun. Like the, the, our Navajo Water Project team celebrates their wins much differently than the Appalachia Water Project team mm. does, or than our Colonial Water Project team or than our policy team in DC. But there is a, a common through line and that is we are celebrating, baby. Oh, I love that. I bet that's so fun to see all like you're just, exactly you're saying the differences of celebration Yet that common that common thread. Um, okay, I have two, two more. Well, I have like a million questions because this is really fun. <laughs> but two more questions. One is I really want to make sure we touch on, you know, the it's kind of like a hard turn, but the sure. impact of not having access to water. Yeah. I can make a million assumptions about this, but in this vein of like, okay, let's not make assumptions. What are some of the key things that you really, you know, want to make sure are communicated about just really the importance of this work? Yeah. So that, that's a, that's a, I don't, I don't think that's a hard left at all. And I think we can, I think we can work this through the sort of lens of social entrepreneurship. I think it's like, if I were to, if I were to explain this as part of my personal journey, running dig deep, I knew like, like, you know, life without running water must be hard. Right. And that was enough to motivate me to start the organization when there wasn't much data available on like, okay, well, how many people don't have it? And what's the real impact in their lives? Even when we published that first report in 2019, we still didn't really understand like, you know, dollar for dollar or impact for impact. Like what is this doing to households? And so for the last two years, we've been working on a study. It's called uh, Draining, the Economic Impact of America's Hidden Water Crisis. We love a, we love a dramatic report name. Um, You're good at that. Yeah, like the prior <laughs> one was good too. It's, it's like refreshing. You. Yeah, sure. It's a, you can find it at digdeep.org slash draining. And it's an economic impact study. Okay, like how much money are we losing? Who's losing it? What's happening? Because money is often an easy way, you know, as a proxy to understand these problems. Um, and so, you know, we researched every way that not having running water impacts someone's lives that we could measure. Um, we found every data set we could, we could get. And there were things we couldn't measure. So the, the estimates that we came up with, with were pretty conservative. But um, even, even at a conservative level, the US economy is losing $8.58 billion every year that we let 2.2 million people live without running water. Mm -hmm. That's almost $16,000 per household. And you can imagine if you don't have running water, it impacts everything, right? I mean, you are spending time outside the home collecting water that impacts your ability to keep a job or to go to school if you don't go to school as often it impacts your ability to graduate and have a better paying job later um, if you're collecting water outside the home you can't always guarantee it's safe so the u.s water gap is causing almost 
230,000 new cases of waterborne illness every year. It's causing tens of thousands of new cases of diabetes, type 2 diabetes, because a lot of people have easier access to sugary beverages than they do to water since they don't have a tap at home. It's causing 71,000 new cases of mental health disorders every year, anxiety, depression, the kind of stress of waking up every morning and not knowing where your water is going to come from. Um, Of course, it's causing death too. like an estimated 610 people die every year um, inside the U.S. water gap, which is, you know, like two planes falling from the sky. And and you can imagine like every time someone dies, like that has a huge economic impact on that family, on their community. It's even impacting GDP. I mean, if you aren't making money at your job because you're collecting water or because you're sick from a waterborne illness or because you didn't get the education you needed, like those are dollars that you don't have to spend in your local economy at your church or your gas station or your grocery store, or your kid's school. And when you don't spend that money in the local economy, a portion of those dollars don't get spent in the wider economy and the whole thing kind of snowballs. Um, and we're losing almost a billion dollars in gross domestic product growth every year that this remains a problem. And of course that is tragic on one hand, it's also like silly. This this is not a difficult problem to solve. Like we. We have helped hundreds of millions, if not billions of people in other countries get access to water and sanitation now. And we need to approach this problem in the U.S. with that same kind of dedication and that same kind of networked approach with a lot of organizations working together. Like right now, you know, we're one of the only organizations in this space. We were the first and still one of the only. And it's so exciting to see the government launch this new pilot program today, but it's still so small. And like, there's so much more to do. But if we could just muster the resources, like, the the initial estimate on what it would take to close this water gap is like less than Americans spend every year on ice cream. Um, Hmm. And the crazy thing is that if we do close it, we can create a ton of wealth for every dollar you invest in a first time access to a tap or a toilet for a family in North Dakota, say, you know, you get $5 back over 50 years. So not only is it like nice to do, but it's also it's like an engine for like economic growth. It's like, you can like, it's like Scrooge McDuck taking a giant swim in his like bathtub full of gold. (laughs) It's really, it's wild. And uh, I think to sort of tie it all back to that entrepreneurship journey, it's like you start something knowing that like things shouldn't be this way. No one, no one in the richest democracy on earth should struggle to get enough clean water every day to survive. But you don't necessarily know, okay, how many people are impacted by that? And what is that doing to their bottom line? And how many instances of mental health or diabetes or whatever is that causing? And what's that doing to the economy? But you start, you know, you put like one foot in front of the other and, and you build a well on the Navajo Nation like we did. You launch a report, you expand your work into Appalachia. Pretty soon, a bunch of smart people have, well, way smarter than me, have joined you. And then all of a sudden you're generating data like this and you can make a much more persuasive argument, the kind of argument that gets government to step in and say, okay, well, we see it, we get it. Like, let's launch a pilot program to do something about this lack of toilets in Alabama and West Virginia and Texas. And I don't know, it feels like we're at this moment with tremendous momentum. And I I, I just want to keep that ball rolling. I, I mean, I feel it. I'm, I'm so excited for you, for the impact that all of the amazing humans that uh, believe in Dig Deep's mission and the impact of it. I'm so excited for you and what it means for the world. I, there's so, I mean, oh, I want to do like a whole study on even you and your leadership and just all of these like fascinating things of like, even how do we get out of our own way and allow people with different skills, like experts in different areas to come on board. And I mean, I just think 
you're building such an amazing, amazing team. Um, the For the sake of our time today, I'm curious, yeah. <laughs> what are... What are ways that people can I'm mean, gonna like get involved? I think there's a, a whole bunch of things. Like, are there if communities are looking for support yeah. from you, you know, how does that happen? And then also if there are communities or individuals who want to support, kind of like the uh, different sides of the same coin, what what do you recommend? What are the ways that folks can contact or propose things to you and your organization. Well, first of all, if you're hearing this and you're, you know, you're in a place without, you know, access to running water or sanitation, do reach out. It's info at digdeep.org. If that's not an area we work in yet, we try to connect you to services, resources, other organizations, government agencies, whoever, even the press, if we need to, to try to get you the help you need. And we live for that. So please do reach out. I think you're right. Like we have two groups of Americans that we work with, right? We have the Americans without running water who ironically like really understand how important the resource is and have a deep connection to it. And then the vast majority of us who have running water and take it completely for granted and have no connection to it. So if you're in that in that second group, there's a couple things you can do. Um, I mean, my job first and foremost is to tell you to give money and please do, because I think we are primarily grassroots funded. Like we don't take any government money now, for instance, like this is really a group of usually 50, 40, 50,000 Americans every year helping Americans with five, 10, $15 donations. And a hundred percent of that money goes directly to programs. It doesn't go to overhead. And like I said, every time we give someone access to water with that money, you get a $5 economic return. So it couldn't get a better bang for your buck. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you're, if you're after this podcast, still kind of wondering like, wait, what? Like, how does this work? Like people don't have running water and like, what is that like? And do I care? Um, and do I care enough to give money? Certainly. Um, then I, I have a challenge for you. I mean, grab a grab an old milk gallon or grab a one liter Nalgene or something, fill it up with some water and spend 24 hours just using that water. Um, we call it the four liters challenge. Most of our clients live on less than a gallon a day. It's not something you should do for a, a long time, but for 24 hours, it's certainly an interesting challenge. I mean, every time you brush your teeth, wash your hair, make some food, wash your hands, <laughs> clean your stinky armpits, like out of that water bottle and limit yourself to a gallon for the day or to four liters. And, um, it's really interesting. Like you'll, you'll realize very quickly what it's like to kind of plan your day, probably for the first time around how much water you have. And, you know, if you're anything like me, you'll be paranoid. You're like, hear the sink running in another room and be like, ah, turn it off. But it's a really interesting way to get in touch, you know, really quickly with what this issue really means. And, um, and really empathize, I think, uh, hopefully with those Americans that face this reality every day. Thank you so much for that challenge. I'm even now I'm like, okay, we're going to launch this episode. Maybe I'll I'm like, you have to do it when you launch it. Like, I want to yes. see this on Instagram. I want to see this on Twitter. Yes. Launch the episode, do the challenge, get everyone else to do it too. I love it. I mean, okay, let's do it. All right. This will be, I don't want to say fun, but in a way of like exciting because it's awareness and it's experience love. and we can make it fun. Why not? <laughs> And I mean, blood, we're not going to suffer. No. And I like, have no problem, you know, being dirtier than maybe I should be physically. So <laughs> that'll be no problem. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, uh, so yes, everyone who is listening, you beautiful humans, uh, please check out Dig Deep, follow what they're doing. I mean, we didn't even tap into all of the amazing actual physical ways that you and Dig Deep are how do you actually bring water to people? Like, there's just so much fascinating stuff here. Please right. follow them, donate, do the four liter challenge. We'll do it all together. Um, and 
George, oh my, so, so amazing to meet you and have this conversation. Is there anything else? I mean, you dropped a few ways for people to contact you. We'll make sure to put contact in our comments or in the description, but is there anything anything else that you want to say right before we sign off? Water is life. Awesome. Water is life, everyone. Uh, Give gratitude to the water that you have 